have a couple of questions for you to contemplate for a moment here as we uh, uh, we pick up. This is part two of our study that we began last week. Uh, I'm speaking about heavenly citizenship, and there are several things involved in uh, in that. That can be the theme in essence in this part that we're dealing with now, the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, specifically most of them in chapter 5 here, the Sermon on the Mount, deal with character perfection. Most people read um, the Beatitudes and uh, they take it for, oh, the temporal things. Uh, They don't dig deep enough uh, oftentimes and find that what Jesus is speaking about here in the greater context is having a character like his. Now I have a question for you. What has Jesus been doing since the year 1844? What has he been doing? Well, first of all, what happened in 1844? There was a great disappointment here because they had a misunderstanding of prophecy, didn't they? But what, what really happened beyond that? What, what happened in 1844 uh, concerning the ministry of Jesus? He, he, his ministerial work changed. He went from the holy place into the most holy place and began a different part of ministry. Um, the foundation of our present truth, in fact is what Jesus began and is doing in heaven right now. And it's found in Daniel 8, verse 14. Daniel 8, verse 14. And this is, uh, as you brought up, Hannah, this is what the disappointment was about, was that they misunderstood what Daniel 8, 14 was was saying, what it was implying. They misunderstood what the sanctuary was. Daniel 8, verse 14 says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. At the end of the 2,300 days, we know that's the the day for year principles involved. It's 2,300 years. It came to an end in 1844, October 22nd of 1844. Then, at that time, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. They were disappointed at that time, the Advent believers, because they believed the sanctuary to be this earth. And in actuality, God allowed them to to go on with that belief, first of all, because God doesn't coerce us into believing things. Uh, But also, there is a cleansing process in that, isn't there? There were many people who were a part of the Advent movement uh, that weren't one in heart and mind with the Lord. They were motivated by fear or by reward. And whenever they were, the disappointment came and, and Jesus didn't come like they had expected Him to, those who weren't converted truly in heart, who were greatly disappointed, left the faith altogether. So there's a cleansing process in that. But what I'm talking about here in Daniel 8, 14 is the cleansing of the sanctuary. And what is that? What does that mean? It's a, a removal of the sins that... And again, uh, I talked about this last time. Peter touches on this in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. When Peter says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, 
that your sins may be blotted out. How are your sins blotted out? First of all, you have to be you have to repent of them and you have to be converted. Jesus has to change your heart. You have to you have to confess your sins with contrition of heart and give your life to him. Jesus becomes your Lord and your Savior. Then he changes you, he converts you, see. He begins this conversion process. He changes your heart. And that he he works on changing your desires from what you naturally desire to to satisfy the wants of passion, the the senses and such, to having control over that. And Peter says this, Repent therefore be converted that your sins may be, what did he say? Blotted out. The times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. This is what Jesus has been doing since 1844. He is working at blotting out our sins Daniel says, cleansing the sanctuary um, as we strive to reach the goal of perfectly revealing His character in our own life. And that means completely overcoming sin. When we do that, see, no more sins will be entering not only our body temple, we won't won't be guilty. Sins won't be entering in, we won't won't be defiled. Uh, um, But the temple in heaven as well. Sins will quit going into the temple. Thus, Jesus is cleansing the temple by cleansing us. Does it make sense? You understand? And when that's accomplished, probation closes and Jesus returns. I shared this with you last time from Christ uh, Object to Lessons, page uh, 69. It's very familiar, or should be, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to claim them as His own. So see... Jesus is doing this work of cleansing the sanctuary, cleansing our lives, and He's not going to come back until that work is done. So we have something to do in that process as well, don't we? By cooperating with Him. When Jesus came the first time, while preaching the Sermon on the Mount, He actually explained, uh, and this is what uh, uh, we touched on, he actually explained the goal of how to be a restored citizen of the kingdom of God. As well as, as you go through, uh, the incentives to righteous living, you know, being an exemplary citizen of the kingdom of God, and the privileges and responsibilities of being a citizen in the kingdom of God. And we find these lessons in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. You also find it in Luke, but it's a little bit different in Luke's case. But we're dealing primarily with the, the book of Matthew. We're looking at the goal of citizenship first, and we'll get into the other lessons in those chapters. The rest of five and six and seven in the coming weeks. Now, many people read the Sermon on the Mount, as I've said before, and they don't see this underlying theme of, of character perfection, which is the goal of citizenship. That's the goal that God wants and, and for our life. And by God's grace, hopefully, we are beginning to see this as we study this and, and uh, learn it. Now, as a quick reminder from part one, Jesus lays out the following in chapter five of Matthew. First, how to become a citizen of the kingdom. This is verses three to twelve. This is what we're dealing with here. 
Uh, second thing you'll find is uh, citizens of the kingdom being living representatives of the principles of the kingdom. And that's verses 13 to 16 in Matthew 5. A third thing is the standard of conduct in the kingdom of heaven. That's verses 17 to 47. We're going to be going through uh, many of these things in the coming weeks. And the fourth thing is a transformation of our life. The perfection of character as the goal of being a complete citizen of the kingdom of God. That's verse 48. We have been concentrating specifically on the first 12 verses of this chapter. How to become a citizen of heaven. And to appreciate fully uh, the significance of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's important to understand not only each principle as Jesus lays it out individually, understand it individually, uh, but also the relationship that those principles have together in the whole message or the greater context. And that's a, actually a Bible study principle. We need to not only know the uh, lesser context, the minute context, but the greater context as well. The sermon is bound together by uh, an overall unity which is only apparent to those who are students in the school of Christ, those who are digging the treasure. Let's take a quick look at what we studied last time. Matthew chapter 5, take your Bibles, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, In seeing the multitudes, this is Jesus now, He went up in into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now that's not just the twelve. Primarily, primarily who he is speaking to in the, the Sermon on the, Mount, on the Mount is his disciples. But there are many other people there. But he's primarily focusing on them because they have been chosen, and he had just ordained them to, to the ministry. So his primary uh, message here, he's attributing, he's he's focusing on the disciples. Doesn't, everyone else can hear too. Okay? So he says, it says here, and his disciples came unto him. And it's not just the twelve, there are many others that were his disciples too. Okay? And verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are happy. It's another way of saying happy. He says, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is what we covered last time together. The profound, if you look at that, blessed are the poor in spirit, the profound spiritual poverty of the poor in spirit, their deep sense of spiritual need. They recognize that they need God. They need the Spirit of God in their life. That sense of their need leads them to mourn. See, as Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And uh, you you, you missed it, part one. But you can see here as you go through, Jesus is laying step after step. He's building one upon the other through the Beatitudes. You begin with, 
a realization that you need the Spirit of God. You're poor in spirit. You need the Spirit of God. You need help from God. And like I said, that leads you to mourn. You mourn because you see the imperfection in your own life. And Jesus is referring to those who in the poverty of of the Spirit long to reach the ultimate goal of character perfection or having the character of Jesus reproduced in their life. They mourn over their shortcomings and their sins. Step by step, we see a growing in character like that of Christ in these verses. As God meets the sense of a person's spiritual need with the riches of uh, or the help of uh, the grace of heaven, so He meets the mourning over sin with the comfort of sins forgiven. So you see your need, you're mourning over that, you go to the Lord, He forgives you. You see, you're comforted then. That guilt is removed. And with that comfort that only God can provide comes meekness and humility. You see, He says then, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Webster's Dictionary defines meek as mild of temper, not easily provoked, patient under injuries, not vain or haughty or resentful, forbearing, submissive. All those words, those English words, uh, describe the Greek word for meek. Meek implies uh, um, also humility. So as you see, you need a spiritual life. You're lacking in spirit. You need help from God. You mourn over your situation. God comforts you. He forgives you. A peace comes upon you. You become mild and humble. You're able to take things from others because you know the truth. You've met Jesus. Meekness is an attitude of the heart and mind and the life that prepares the way for that big word, sanctification. Or character perfection. Being made holy by God's grace. Meekness toward, towards God means that we accept His will and His dealing with us as good, that we submit to Him in all things without hesitation because we know He has our best interest in all. A meek man has self under complete control no matter what comes his way. And so we see in these verses that the poor in spirit receive the riches of grace help from God they mourn because of their sins and they receive comfort or peace through forgiveness see and with this comfort from the spirit comes meekness and humility of the soul and with this humility and meekness they begin hungering and thirsting for righteousness or in other words to do what is right in the eyes of God and that's what Jesus said he said Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. From the Review and Herald, June 4th, 1895, says the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. You guys remember what imputed means? It's given to your account. You're given credit for it, basically. So the righteousness by which we are justified, we're forgiven is imputed. So then when God looks at us and He looks at our record, He doesn't see our record because we've repented of that and asked forgiveness. Jesus, what He sees is Jesus' record written in our place. 
we're given credit for the righteousness of Jesus. You see that? She goes on and she says, the righteousness by which we are sanctified or made holy is imparted. That means we are given the power, the strength, the moral courage, we covered some of these last time, to do what is right from this point that we're just right on. So justification, sanctification, imputed, imparted, they come together at the same time. Though sanctification is a work of a lifetime. She says the first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. So when you give yourself to Jesus, you become a child of God. In God's eyes, you're His child. You have the title. You see? You're a child of God. The second fits us for being a citizen of heaven. It says, okay, you're a child of God. Now you're going to learn to walk as the righteous walk. You see the difference? So Jesus said that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. They'll be filled. Because you're thirsting and hungry after what? God's character. To be like Jesus. My question is, do you believe it? If you believe it, then claim it and exercise your faith in overcoming the difficulties in your pathway to heaven. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and gain your title to heaven. And Jesus will work to make you fit to reign with Him in the kingdom. Now these were the first four Beatitudes. The first four of eight qualifications for heavenly citizenship that we covered in part one. Now we want to pick up our study. Go to Matthew 5 verse 7. Here's the fifth qualification. And again, hopefully we're learning something here and we can see, if you go back, you can see Jesus laying step after step in this process and how they inter, they're interwoven together. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Again, the blessed means happy. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The Greek word translated as merciful also means pitiful uh, and compassionate. You're pitiful. You, you pity people. You feel compassion towards them. You're merciful towards them. In Hebrews 2.17, Christ is said to be a merciful and faithful high priest. I like that. If you put in the word for merciful, you put in compassionate. Doesn't that sound pretty good? Jesus is a compassionate and faithful high priest. The mercy here of which Christ is speaking is an active virtue toward our fellow human beings. Showing them mercy. I mean, come on, think about it. Mercy is of little value until it takes the form of compassionate deeds towards someone else, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't amount to much unless it's active. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 46, deeds of mercy are presented as being the test of admission to the kingdom of God. I'm not going to go there. Uh, but you can read that on your own. Uh, James, uh, he even includes deeds of mercy in his definition of pure religion. 
In James 1 and verse 27, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. This is something we need to pay attention to if we want to have a pure religion, one that's undefiled before God. He says, this is it. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's what James says is a pure religion that is undefiled before God. So you see the the mercy there. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is what James is saying. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. I want you to note that Micah, like uh, Jesus, mentions both humility before God and mercy toward men. Did you catch that? To love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And these may be compared with the two commandments on which all the law and the prophets hang. Right? To love God with all your heart, and soul, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And we see this truth, this merciful receiving mercy revealed in the harvest principle. You remember the harvest principle? Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. We've talked about, about this before. We studied this oh, some weeks ago, the harvest principle. Paul said to the Galatians, he said, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap ever, life everlasting. So you see a part of this in uh, uh, this fifth qualification. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain what? Mercy. If you're compassionate to others... Very much, you're going to receive compassion back. That's what I call the harvest principle. Here's a, a statement from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 23. There is sweet peace for the compassionate spirit, a blessed satisfaction in the life of self-forgetful service for the good of others. The Holy Spirit that abides in the soul and is manifest in the life will soften hard hearts and awaken sympathy and tenderness. You will reap that which you sow. To be merciful is to treat others better than they really deserve to be treated. Isn't that right? You know, that's how God treats us. God treats us better than we deserve to be treated. God delights to show mercy. He is kind to those who are unthankful as well as those who are evil. <laughs> By His actions, we are to learn how to treat one another. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. You see that? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Through Paul, God says 
in Ephesians 4 and verse 32. He says, Be ye kind one to another. You guys know this one, don't you? Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. There never was a time when there was greater need for the exercise of mercy than today. All around us are the poor, the distressed, the afflicted, the sorrowing, those who are ready to perish. It's not like there isn't anything that we can do to show mercy. And when we show compassion, we reap compassion. When we show mercy, we reap mercy. Matthew 7, verse 12 says, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. What is that referred to often as? The golden rule, right? The golden rule. Gold is very precious, isn't it? The golden rule applies both to our treatment of others and to the kind of treatment they accord us in return. The cruel, hard-hearted, mean-spirited person rarely receives kind and merciful treatment at the hands of others. But how often... Those who are kind and considerate of the needs and feelings of others find that the world often repays them in kind. Pretty often. Of course, we know uh, there's coming a day when God's people will be persecuted. And a death decree and such. But right now, you reap what you sow. Here's a, a statement from Signs of the Times, June 13, 1892. In the providence of God, events have been so ordered that the poor are always with us in order that there may be a constant exercise in the human heart of the attributes of mercy and love. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever heard somebody say, if God existed, why would there be poor among us? Or why would there be suffering? Or why would there... Get that quite a lot from those who don't believe in God. I mean, how, if God is God of love, why does He allow these things to happen? Why, you know, why isn't everything peaches and cream? You know? Why isn't there a, a a pot of gold at the end of every rainbow? What you know, you put in your own idea there. It's because we need to learn mercy and love. She goes on, she says, Man is to cultivate the tenderness and compassion of Christ. He is not to separate himself from the sorrowing, the afflicted, the needy, and the distressed. That's a field for us to help ourselves while we help others. You see, I've, I've been learning in painful ways at times, but I have been learning that you do reap what you sow. And when you bless others and you love others, 
and I'm talking about agape, not necessarily, you know, infatuation or, you know, any other of the types of love. It does come back to you. Love actually grows in your own heart. When you take care, and this is what Jesus was trying to show us by His life. Yeah. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when you give, you receive. It's actually what happens. It may not be your intention to receive, but you receive. Well, that's a, you know an unselfish motive is what I'm talking about. Are you merciful and compassionate to those around you? That's a question we need to consider. Do you esteem others as better than yourself? Are you using your wealth and means to alleviate, alleviate those who are suffering? Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Here's the next qualification. You can see step by step here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word translated heart there designates the intellect, the conscience, the inner person. Purity of heart. That's interesting, isn't it? Concept. Purity in heart. It includes all the desirable character traits to the exclusion of all that are undesirable, and that's according to the Word of God. To define what is desirable and what is undesirable. It was not ceremonial purity that Jesus had in mind here when He said this. But the inward cleanness of our heart. If the motives are pure, the life will be pure. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Here's another statement from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 24. In one who is learning of Jesus, there will be manifest a growing distaste for careless manners, unseemly language, and coarse thought. What is coarse thought? Well, coarse is the opposite, uh, you would say, of fine. Fine thought. What is coarse thought? Rough, rugged, unrefined. Unrefined thought. Exactly. Undignified. Coarse thought on the baser things. See? She says, when Christ abides in the heart, there will be purity and refinement of thought and manner. You will always be wanting to better uh, your behavior. Because that's what Jesus is trying to do, see? He wants you to be a better person. He wants you to be like Him. You were created with your own tastes, your own individualism, but you can have a character like His, which is refined, noble, pure language, careful manners, 
refined thought. You think before speaking. (laughs) Right? Those with pure hearts have forsaken sin as the master principle in their life and their lives are completely consecrated to God. See, they began that process of being changed. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says in verses 14 to 16, these are very familiar to us, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid, he says. God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? So if you are doing the right things, you're not under the law. In other words, you're not condemned by the law. See? It doesn't do away with the law. You can't do away with the law of God as you can't do away with God. See? Whoever you serve is your master. Whoever you obey is Yeah, is your master. You're their servant. And as he's saying, Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart. This is what we strive for. We strive to have a pure heart. And when I say strive, we work with Christ as He cleanses the sins from our body temple and thus in the temple in heaven. To be pure in heart means that the motives are right. That by the grace of Christ you've turned your back on past mistakes. You don't live in the past. That you're pressing toward the mark of perfection in Christ. If you fall down, you don't stay down. We've got to realize as a people that as children of God, we're growing, we're learning. Yes, we feel ashamed. That's what falling under the law does. See? We do, when we're under the law, we have that guilt, that condemnation. But we have a faithful and just high priest who will hear us. He's our advocate. We confess our sins. We stand back up. He dusts us off. We make a change here or there. We try it again. And the children are learning to walk. You don't throw them away because they fall the first few times, do you? Well, you messed up. So much for you. God's not that way. And we're not to be that way. You you turn your back on the, the mistakes. You don't live in the past. I've run into people who still live in the past. It's as if they feel pleasure from the guilt. Yeah, I, and I, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't like guilt, but we need to be in essence. This is what Paul was con- conveying in Philippians chapter three, verses thirteen to fifteen. He says, "Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. Far from it." And one time, Paul says, "I'm the chiefest of all sinners." 
How many of you went about persecuting and killing God's people? You know? He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. I do this. Forgetting those things which are behind. I can't change them. I can't do a thing about them. The best thing I can do about them, I guess, is forget them. Because they can't be changed. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I'm going to head for the mark. And this is what he says. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Isn't that interesting? As many as be perfect. You see, when you when you ask forgiveness from the Lord and you're cleansed, remember you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. You pray for His strength, power, moral, integrity, etc., character traits to be imparted to you as you grow. But every step along the way, God sees you as perfect. You see that? And this is what Paul says. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. Forget those things in the past and press toward the mark of the high calling of Christ. And if any, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. In other words, he's saying he's going to reveal this to you as you grow closer and closer to him. Here, I want to share this with you. It's from the story of Jesus, page 61. God cares more for what we really are than for what we say we are. He does not care how beautiful we may look, but He wants our hearts pure. Then, all our words and actions will be right. You see, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is why He says, a new heart I give to you. I'm going to give you a pure heart so that your words, your actions, your thoughts will be pure ones. Unless you have a new heart given to you by God, your thoughts, your actions, your words are not going to be pure because they're coming from a polluted well. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What did Jesus say about the pure in heart? He said, They shall see God. It is clear that the words see God refer to spiritual as well as physical sight. Consider this in respect to what we've learned so far. Think about this. Those who feel their spiritual need enter the kingdom of heaven now. Aren't you considered a part of the family of God? Right? Now. Those who mourn for sin are comforted now. Those who are humble at heart receive their title to the new earth now. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, are filled now. The merciful obtain mercy now, right? In like manner, the pure in heart have the privilege of seeing God now through the eyes of faith. 
And eventually, in the kingdom, it'll be their privilege to see Him face to face. In 1 John 3 and verse 2, John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Not then, now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We see Him as He is right now by faith because we read the words and we pray and we see Him in the actions of others. But one day we're going to physically see Him as He is. I don't know about you. I hope you're this way. I long for that day. Revelation 22 Verses 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse. And this is speaking of the new Jerusalem and the new kingdom. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face. And His name shall be in their foreheads. Only those who develop the heavenly vision in this present world will have the privilege of seeing God in the world to come in that new Jerusalem that Revelation is telling us. You know, too many times we as Christians become spiritually (laughs) cross-eyed. It's almost like we're a chameleon. You know, it can move his eyes all in different areas. We attempt to keep one eye fixed on the heavenly kingdom and the other on the pleasures of sin and the flesh pots of Egypt. Our only safety is to live by the principle to love God and make Him first in our life. I always go back to that. Matthew 6.33 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It helps me to get my bearings. And when we do this by faith, the righteousness of Christ purifies our heart and we see God. Matthew 5, verse 9. I think I need to move along here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What Christ is referring to uh, in particular here is bringing others into harmony with God when He talks about being peacemakers. You know, Paul tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's Romans 8, 7. But Jesus is the master peacemaker. He came to show humanity that God is not our enemy. Isaiah says that Christ is the Prince of Peace. He was the messenger of peace from God to man. As Paul says in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. Because of our peace with God, we are constrained by the Holy Spirit to share with others how to gain the peace that we've received. The Holy Ghost constrains us. He pushes us. 
Again, I want to share something with you from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 28. The grace of Christ received into the heart subdues enmity. What's enmity mean? Anybody paying attention? Hatred. Enmity. The grace of Christ received into the heart subdues enmity. That's hatred. It allies allays strife and fills the soul with love. He who is at peace with God and his fellow men cannot be made miserable. Remember he said, Blessed are the meek? Envy will not be in his heart. Evil surmisings will find no room there. Hatred cannot exist. The heart that is in harmony with God is a partaker of the peace of heaven and will diffuse its blessed influence on all around. The spirit of peace will rest like dew upon hearts weary and troubled with worldly strife. Christ's followers are sent to the world with the message of peace. Whoever, by the quiet, unconscious influence of a holy life, shall reveal the love of Christ, whoever, by word or deed, shall lead another to renounce sin and yield his heart to God, is a peacemaker. That's a very powerful statement there. Paul tells Christians to be at peace among themselves. Did you know that? Doesn't that sound like... Why would Christians need to be told to be at peace among themselves? That's in 1 Thessalonians 5. Well, yeah. He also says to follow peace with all men. Hebrews 12.14 Those who have Christ in the heart will be a peacemaker. From the story of Jesus, again, page 62, He who has the meek and lowly spirit of Christ will be a peacemaker. Such a spirit provokes no quarrel, gives back no angry answer. It makes the home happy and brings a sweet peace that blesses all around. I know when I read this, it really hit me. I know that I need more of the Spirit for sometimes I give an angry answer. I ask God forgive me and help me to be a peacemaker. Peacemakers are declared to be the children of God. That's what I want to be. To be a son of God means to resemble Him in character. Peacemakers are the sons of of God because they are at peace with Him themselves and are devoted to the cause of leading their their brethren, the people that they know, the people that they come into contact with to be at peace with God as well. From a devotional book entitled Reflecting Christ, page 38. The spirit of peace is evidence of their connection with heaven. The sweet savor of Christ surrounds them. The fragrance of the life, the loveliness of the character, reveal to the world the fact that they are children of God. Men take knowledge of them that they have been with Jesus. Do people take knowledge of you that you've been with Jesus? Do you have that peace that passes all understanding? Do you wish to bring others to the source of all peace? These are questions we each need to contemplate. This is a qualification that I long to be fulfilled in my life. To be a peacemaker. 
It prepares one for what lies ahead. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I include verse 10 and 11 together because they refer to the same aspect really of a Christian experience. And they should be considered really as one beatitude. And that's how I addressed it. Have you ever been persecuted for doing the Lord's will? Maybe maybe you've had a job for a long time and you've come to the the truth, you've accepted Christ and He's he's shared with you that, that He wants the Sabbath to be kept holy. You have a decision to make then, don't you? Maybe you'll lose your job. Maybe you've been ridiculed for your beliefs. Has that ever happened? It's happened to me many times. It's not going to end. How do you react when you're persecuted for doing what's right? Do you retaliate, murmur, and complain? The Greek word translated in verse 11... Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. Uh, The Greek word translated as revile means to reproach, to slander, to insult. Jesus is actually what He's doing. He's explaining some of the forms in which persecution um, manifests itself. You know, it's really hard for me sometimes uh, to think that one could be happy when being persecuted. (laughs) That's what He said. Blessed are ye, right? Blessed are they which are persecuted. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. We see example though, after example throughout the Scriptures of how the followers of God would rejoice while being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Well friends, this is only possible if Christ is living within the heart. You know, there are no worries for the one whose complete dependence is upon Jesus. Well, because they know no matter what the circumstance is that they're under, the Lord has them there for His reason. And that satisfies. I know this is where I'm supposed to be. The Lord is allowing this for a reason. And because He's allowing it, it's His will, why should I fret and be unhappy? Since the entrance of sin, there has been enmity between Christ and Satan, between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, and between those who serve God and those who serve Satan. Paul warned us as believers that through much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Paul said to Timothy, he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, as citizens of heaven, we can expect to have tribulation. 
And why is that? Because our characters, our ideals, our aspirations, our conduct, they all bear witness against the evil that's in the world. That's what Jesus did. Their life of righteousness lays bare the devil's lie that his way is the better way, that God is unfair and unjust. He doesn't like that. In John 15, verses 20-22, we read, and this is what Jesus was saying about this, He said, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin, and they're mad about it. Christians suffer for the name that they bear, the name of Christ. Jesus warned those who would be His disciples that they would be hated of all men. But then He quickly added that whoever loseth his life for My sake shall find it. Those who suffer most for Christ here are best able to appreciate what He suffered for them. I think. From the story of Jesus, again, page 62. Christ knew that for His sake many of His disciples would be put in prison and many would be killed. But He told them not to mourn because of this. Nothing can harm those who love and follow Christ. He will be with them in every place. They may be put to death, but He will give them a life that will never end and a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Take that to heart, friends. And to the mature Christian, the thought of reward is not uppermost in their thoughts or their actions. God is not obeyed solely for the purpose of getting into heaven. God is obeyed because cooperating with uh, the Creator is the supreme goal, the joy of existence. It's what really brings true happiness. Zen. Yeah, not quite Zen. Persecution actually serves to purify the life and to purge the dross from the character. It helps us to reproduce the character of Jesus in our life. The sacrifice may be great, but the reward is also great, isn't it? We'll receive a glorified body. We'll have a right to the tree of life. We'll be able to enter into the city as a citizen. A citizen of the heavenly kingdom. A citizen of the kingdom of God. We can't imagine how great that is. Now as we looked at these Beatitudes, I want to ask you, did you notice that the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude contain the assurance of being a citizen, a member of the Kingdom of God? I like how Jesus does does that. He reinforces that. Those who experience the eight qualifications for citizenship here that we've looked at are worthy of a place in the Kingdom. And isn't that something to to praise God for and rejoice over? 
Isn't that what Jesus said? What's Paul saying in Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Is that what he says? Jesus said to us there, Rejoice and be exceeding glad even though we're getting insulted and reviled and persecuted. I want you to notice how it's stated in Luke 6 and verse 23. Same thing. Notice how Luke puts it. Jesus said, Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers under the prophets. I like that. Leap for joy. That's a great way to express incredible happiness, isn't it? You know, long before I was a Christian, I had season tickets to all the Purdue University football games. And it was during the time when they were good. They actually won, you know. And they had very good teams, and they won a lot. And if you're familiar with such things, I'm not saying it's a good thing, bad thing, etc. I don't want to go there. But what I'm saying is, if you're familiar with such things, you know that when your team, the one that you are invested in, see, emotionally and such, when it does something good, you leap out of your seat. Don't you? You leap out of your seat and jump and you yell and you scream with happiness. Well, beloved, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ has done much more to instill great joy within our hearts than anything earthly can. If you are invested in Him, His promise is He will be invested in you. And you too will leap for joy no matter what comes your way, for you know that Jesus has done the greatest thing that anyone can do. He's paid your debts and offers eternal life. You can stop working to become righteous by your own means. You can accept the gift of salvation and be given the means to overcome. You can have the character, the loveliness, the meekness, the mildness of Jesus' character reproduced in you. You know, the Jews were toiling... uh, wearily to become righteous by their own efforts, to earn citizenship by works. But in their scrupulous, and they were scrupulous, their legalism, they paid so much attention to the minute details of the letter of the law that they lost sight completely of the spirit of the law. They had made the law an end in itself something to be kept for its own sake and they had forgotten that its purpose was to lift their gaze to the high ideals of supreme love toward God and self-sacrificing and merciful compassion toward others. The rabbis taught that righteousness consists in having an excess of good deeds over evil deeds. that God was taking count of these things in heaven. Christ has shown that in the kingdom He came to establish, it is the inner attitudes and motives that determine perfection of character and not the outward acts alone. 
Man may look on the outward appearance, but what does God look at? The heart. Jesus ended His citizenship discourse by saying in verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And beloved, by grace you can be. That's what Jesus has in mind for all of us. Will we let Him? Do you want to be a citizen of heaven? Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Do you know how much it costs? All that you have. It's a gift, but you have to take it. Consider these things. I hope that you will accept that most precious gift. The most expensive gift that anyone will ever give you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for Jesus. We thank you for the the words here, the opportunity that is given to us to become a citizen of the kingdom. Lord, we pray that we will not waste our opportunity. We pray that You will forgive us our sins. We ask humbly, Lord, that as we claim the blood of Jesus, that we will be cleared of our guilt. That we will not be under the law anymore. That grace may abound within our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, for the righteousness of Jesus to be fulfilled in us. From this moment forward, may we truly be new creatures in Christ and share this truth with those around us. Lord, help us to be merciful and compassionate to all, to be a peacemaker. For that is to be like Jesus. We thank You for the Sabbath day and pray that we may keep it holy. Continue to give us a taste of heaven throughout the remainder of this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.